They call me Duff. That's my first name. And my last name is Krirar, which is really hard to say, and it sounds like it comes from seven or eight different ethnicities. Um, but uh, it's Scottish, from the Gaelic. And if I spelled the original spelling in Gaelic, it wouldn't matter anyway. It's just different from the way people say it. But um, I want to talk to anybody who is normally ages six and up and still here. Because today we're talking about names. How many of you know what your name means? Okay, how many of you need to talk to your parents about what your name means? <laughs> right, okay. See, you know, we look at a person's name and we forget, and maybe parents do sometimes because they kind of say, what's in the movies? What's on my video game? I actually met someone who named their child after a character in a video game. It's not a bad idea if it's a nice name. But it seems rather random, you know? Um, see, there was a time when your name was your destiny. It told people who you were in terms of where you came from, who your parents were, what uh, aspect of the Christian faith you followed. It might also be a bit of a predictor of their hopes and dreams for you. Like, not too many people name their child Beelzebub. <laughs> There's a reason for that, of course. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Not many people name their child Adolf either anymore. Names have a, a date to them sometimes. And mine, to share with you, means someone with a dark or swarthy face. And the last name means someone who punches holes in things. He makes sieves, strainers, uh, he tinkers. He's kind of a MacGyver with tin. So that's what I am. I'm a dark-faced hole puncher. <clears throat> so watch out. Uh, I'm also known here and there as the Sermonator. So be prepared, OK? Yeah, it's not a t-shirt yet, but it will be. Let me read you a passage from Exodus. Actually, let's read it together. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. This is called an, a warning order. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. Uh, it was a lot greener then around Mount Sinai. Uh, flocks and herds could graze there. But on the mountain, no, this is too holy. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Chesed. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. The Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Technically, this is called a theophany, where God reveals himself and comes to you. I can't think of a more difficult thing to preach right now, okay? First of all, I discovered that lawnmowers are very hard to pick up and load into a truck and unload out of a truck without straining your back. So if I wince now and then, it's because they don't make lawnmowers um, for 67-year-old men, at least without a ramp. But in the last four days, does anybody know what's on the news? I mean, you know, Carol and I, because we, it's our living to be tuned into the real world, and it was my living for a long time to know how to relate that to a lot of people who do dangerous things, we do that habitually. It's a great time to tune it off, put on shine, and forget about everything. It's a great time to stick your head inside your shell and say, God have mercy on them all. I'm out of here, going on holiday from knowing. Because what we have, of course, is a period when Mount Sinai looks like a place to take refuge. Hide in refuge. Hide there in that mountain, in that cloud with God. Except it's not as safe as it looks. Because God appears. And he says, I have a name. I have a way of dealing with you. I have a way that you don't know that comes from who I am. But I'm going to tell you now, you have a destiny. Now, if you remember the context, what it all comes from, there had been this gathering, the giving of the Ten Commandments, that, those two tablets that God carved never got to the ground where the people were, because the people had gotten so frightened, so rebellious, that they stampeded Aaron into making the golden calf. Moses is coming down the hill and says, what's this I hear? And Joshua, who'd been halfway up the hill, says, sounds like a battle, sir. Moses says, no, it's a party, and not a good one. It's an orgy. And those two tablets are broken, shattered. That covenant dies. The covenant that God was going to make anew on Sinai. The one was going to make a new people, march into the promised land, and keep the promises made so many years before to Abraham in that very first covenant. And it dies in those broken tablets on the hill. And Moses' heart falls.
And then God says, okay, <clears throat> I'm looking for a new people. This covenant's broken. These people aren't worthy. It's goodbye. And Moses does something that will show us a bit of what someone else a long time later will do. He collapses and says, no, forgive them, save them, because frankly, it's not like you, God, to destroy them without hesed, forgiveness. And God says, okay, come again. Come to the mountaintop. And I will proclaim to you something I have never proclaimed to anyone else but you. And you are going to tell that people my secret salvation name. We use it so much now we forget how exclusive that name is. Yahweh. Do you know it's only explained here? And it's only given once before at the burning bush. Yahweh is the salvation name of God. I only use my name when I'm saving. You heard it, Moses, yourself in front of the burning bush. I gave you my name when you asked. And I told you, Yahweh is my name. The day I promised that I would send you and your brother to take those people I promised 400 years before out of captivity to a land of milk and honey. So Yahweh is a sacred salvation name. When I use this name, I'm saving people. I'm saving my covenant people. And we have to remember that most of this story is not about you personally Moses, or you personally Aaron, or you personally Joshua, or you personally Peter, or you personally Bill, or you personally Rex, or you personally Mara. You're, it's about the people of that covenant. It's about the nation, the people. I'm walking back and forth, aren't I? Yeah. It's a hard habit. I picked up lecturing and I still do it. Um, it's that old shooting gallery thing. Ping, ping. Sorry. I will try and stand still. Make it easier for less to follow with the camera maybe too. So what's happening here is God is saying, there's going to be something happen this time, Moses. And by the way, you're chiseling out those rocks yourself this time. You're going to pay and sweat and pain for this renewal. But it's because you, too, need to know that it costs to make a covenant. And I'm going to appear in a way like, but not exactly like I appeared to Abraham. Abraham appeared, I appeared to Abraham in a dream. Remember, darkness fell upon Abraham, and he saw the flame pass between the divided animals and the covenant was made the first time with Abraham. Well, this time God says, I am going to appear. Now you'll need protection, Moses, because you will make the sound that a fly makes on an electric barnyard bug getter if I appear without your protection in mind. Formerly known as Moses, now known as Cinders. The point here is that what God is saying is, I'm going to do this this time, and I'm going to do something extra, and you and everyone else will never be the same because I will proclaim my name again. And I will link it forever with what's in the name. You know, we say Yahweh, Yahweh, 
Yahweh. It's even translated and used as the proper name for God in much of the Old Testament in the Jerusalem Bible. The problem is it can be used casually. But it is the saving name that God uses, and it's new. It's never been heard before, and it will be heard again later in the name of one man. He who saves his people. Jesus and Yahweh are the same. Their names are the same. Their work is the same. Their identity is the same. And when someone like Moses says, Lord, show us your way, Yahweh says, it's in my name that you find my nature. The name from the burning bush is now explained with hesed. My name, which by the way, in Hebrew culture today, rather than use that name carelessly, you'll find most often uh, observing Jews will say Hashem, the name, rather than use Yahweh carelessly. You won't hear that name bandied around like you will in some Christian circles because it's dangerous to be careless with that name. You know there is a commandment about that, right? Yeah, use Yahweh with care. Maybe it's better to say the name, Hashem, than Yahweh, unless we really bring into the meaning all that it is. Here will be the complete self-disclosure. God will proclaim himself. He will announce himself. He will expose himself in the name and the word hased, which is a noun, you know, hased, blessedness, loving. We had all the nouns, but it's also a verb, says God. When I proclaim hased with you and when I keep hased with you, I am a hased doing God not just a hased naming God. I'm not wearing a label. I'm giving you my action. The saving name of God will forever be linked to loving kindness, to eternal faithfulness, and eternal identity. And it will not be done with my eyes closed to who you really are. Now, if you thought then up in the mountain was a safe place to be, you know better. Moses hears this, drops, because he knows what this means. After all, he's just seen his people reach that full expression of who they are naturally. Let's make us a golden calf. And Moses says, I'm going to make you drink that so you see what your golden calf is really worth. You want to know the name you want to bear the name? You want to be in the covenant? you got to put that stuff away forever. And if you don't, God says, I see. And I don't forget. It's interesting. You know, the third and fourth generation that you see in the third commandment, second commandment, you realize what he's saying is, I watch and I visit upon the third and fourth generation. That's actually a limitation. 
Most God curses in those days went on forever to the obliteration of the people who broke the covenant. But here, God says, third and fourth generation, and it's not necessarily about individuals. We'll come to that in a minute. But essentially, chapter 34, verse 6, I am the faithful, faith-keeping God who does chesed to my people. The word's interesting because it's not a word for equals. It's used in covenants of unequals. Someone of a higher power, of a higher status, of a higher nature gives something to their covenant partner who is inferior, who cannot fulfill, who never can fulfill, who is always going to be failing and breaking the new covenant. And when Moses brings down these newly carved tablets, he's not saying, it's all wonderful again. He's saying, we have been forgiven. Yahweh Hesed is giving us a second covenant. Not even a do-over. It's a start-over. But not blind. Can you still see the traces of gold dust lying around? You still have people with indigestion because of what you did? You will remember this, and you will not repeat it. But I am going to bless and forgive you anyway. Because that is in my nature. I am the God who does chesed. He acts on behalf of someone who is in need out of love and out of loyalty. God's loyalty surpasses ours. And our loyalty is, well, good intentions. Sometimes loyalty to death. Sometimes loyalty to one generation to the next. But we better be serious, says God to Moses, because this time it's for keeps. That loyalty will lead to mercy and compassion. That's the ground for the new covenant with Moses. I will pronounce my name and my goodness before you. Don't waste it. Don't take it in vain. Don't make it an empty word. Link it to Hesed and be faithful. It's a covenant. And God comes between Moses and the people in this moment. You know the story. God comes to Moses, pronounces his name. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, Yahweh. I am the Lord, the Lord. Have you got it yet, people? Have you got it yet, Moses? This is who I am. I am the saving God. But I am putting myself in between as the covenant keeper. You can't keep it. But I will. But don't play with it. Don't take it for granted. I am exposing my divine nature. People says, you know, God, show us your ways. What kind of a God are you? God says, you watch. And I will show you things you haven't even dreamed of that people will hear about and they will whistle in astounding fear and amazement. I am trustworthy. 
I am, I am, Yahweh, I am that am. I am trustworthy. I am loyal. Even when we humans are not. And even when we cannot even give the same kind of loyalty, and we can't, can we? God's guaranteeing his loving thoughtfulness to his people. Moses says, teach me your ways. Who are you? God says, listen to my name and let me explain it to you. So we learn how he acts. Why? So that we will know today to recognize the one who comes after, who acts this way, whose name is an extension of Yahweh, Jesus. Jesus acts this way. But God has brought him to us. He appears as a man so that we will not make that sound of the bug on the bug getter in the barnyard. But will in fact experience the grace, the truth, the unfailing loyalty, and the love of Jesus that is directly essential to the nature of Yahweh, the saving God. You will learn why I have these names and you will learn why you must remember them and take them in vain not. This is the act of a superior in a friendly way towards an inferior, in fact, one who has already failed in the covenant. See, that's the point. It's not like there's never been a covenant. These people have always been in covenant and they broke it. And they're still in covenant, and God says, I'm going on with you. And you want to see faithfulness, that's faithfulness. Broken oath? You ever been in a broken oath? If you're indigenous, you have been. I taught a group of high school students at Spencer High School on the weekend, or last week, that the word treaty in our culture is derived from covenant except the people who made those treaties from Ottawa had forgotten what it meant. What indigenous people tell me now is we don't want new treaties. We just want the ones we have to be honored. Mm. Mm. So this is God's testimony. We're also worried about us having a testimony. I once was lost and now I'm found and then I'll fail again and I'll fail again, and I'll fail again. Stick with me, Les. Fail again, and fail again, and fail again, and fail again, and fail again. And really, God, what are you doing? And he says, look, I bled for you. Am I going to walk away? Am I going to admit I'm licked? Is my essential nature to be canceled by your culture? No. I'm coming after you. And I will find you. Then what? So, Yahweh keeps Hesed. He's chosen to tabernacle among us. Where does that verse come from? John. Yeah, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is fully aware of this passage. Jesus comes and tabernacles among us full of grace and truth. To accommodate to our weakness, 
to save us from his eternal nature and the consequences of his wrath. Okay, wow, wonderful. Give me Hesed. I need it. But you see, the proclamation has more than that. It talks about aspects of faithfulness and God's. It's not as easy as it looks, is it? I surrender all. Yeah. Um, well, except most of us at some point discover we've got a, a one hand with fingers crossed behind it. <laughs> you know, oh, but not the mission field, not the ministry, whatever, you know, not this family. So life with God is hard sometimes. It's hard for us to understand. That's why we have to have this proclamation. God is sovereign. He is bound, after all, by one thing, to keep his own law, to keep to his own nature. We, on the other hand, are free. You know, we're supposed to have loyalty, but we're not bound by it because we're not capable of that kind of unswerving loyalty. It's a special gift to be that faithful, to join in the dividing and the death of, of a covenant, to bind it and seal it in blood. Some of us are. Some of us aren't. A lot of us are in the middle. We have our good days and we have our bad days. And God then says, I'm watching. We will experience hesed even when we don't deserve it. The pronouncement of goodness is followed by a disclosure of God's fierce justice. You know, I joke about Carol and I. We've been married for 46 years. And I joke about how we'll not divorce. We'd rather murder each other uh, to avoid the scandal of divorce, right? Because we're, you know, we, we think about these things sometimes in crazy ways, you know? At four in the morning and you're sorting out for the fifth time why I forgot something that I didn't know I forgot because I forgot that I forgot that I, you know. And then, you, you know, I, I know there is a permanent desire to bring this conflict to a cessation with extreme prejudice. But we remember that that's our problem, not God's. God says, okay, you two. You're not angry now. Go to sleep in the morning. Start over. You know, we never go to sleep with our anger, although we often get some short sleep. More so, by the way, when we were first married than now. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's age. But it means that God's fierce justice, which is even fiercer than Carol's, does not <laughs> overlook evil. But I want to come to this again because of a misunderstanding. We can have the next slide now. Because that looks like a doom sentence, a doom saying. I will not forget. I will visit upon the iniquities. King James, that's how I was raised. To the third and fourth generation, you know. Um, which means I'm somehow bearing the sin of my grandfather and his father. No. This is a, na a nation covenant thing. In the Old Testament, this is not about individuals. This is about covenant people. The people of God. God will not overlook idolatry. 
He will not look over the abuse of his holy name. He will not look over the breaking of his law. He is not one to blink at injustice. Because after all, breaking God's laws, somebody is going to experience injustice and pain as a result. Right? Even if it's not me, if I were living then as a Jew, and I broke the laws around slavery, the slave would suffer more than me, maybe. But that... That pain, those consequences, that wrath, may go on for more generations. In fact, it's far more likely the people who worry about this verse and who are actually anxiously trying to be freed of past curses on their father or their mother or whatever. You know, we have a few people that are taught that these curses are inherited and they look for deliverance personal deliverance from the sins of their family? Well, let's take a look at Exodus and Deuteronomy. We'll start with Deuteronomy, I think. Am I right? Yeah. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, or children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. It's amazing how that verse has been forgotten by those who are worried about inherited guilt. Bound by his law, God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Let's go to the next verse of Ezekiel. Everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. It's twice it's explicitly proclaimed the issue is with the sinner, not with their children or with their parents. And even the consequences of a sin by the nation will last for about three generations. Now, by the way, think about how long was the time the Jewish nation was in captivity in Babylon? Why did they go to Babylon? It wasn't for a vacation. They were literally deported by okay spontaneous word from the congregation Babylon thank you Babylon just down the road from Ottawa no no Babylon that's the point it was an abduction by a conquering nation from the land of promise because of what their king's persistently fostered idolatry and the people joined right in. And how long did it last? 70 years, that's right. Third or fourth generation. In fact, that's partly why it's there. It's a reference to the length of the captivity when God says, you will be cured of idolatry if I have to replace you, not by picking another nation, but by having the old idolaters pass away for their sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? So if people come up to you and they're obsessing about being freed from some sin of their parents, there may be consequences. If your father was an abuser, you will be in pain for it. But it's not a guilt you will carry and have to pass on by, like some kind of Norse doom being laid upon you. Part of my job as a teacher um, or the sermonator, is to remind people that some of these things we think we understand, we often get wrong, and it burdens us. 
So if you have that burden, let it go. Because it's not in God's nature. He is the Hesed giving God. The superior partner comes to bless and heal. The greatness of the Father and His Son in our time is the healing, the unfailing Hesed when we repent. And in Christ, who extends this Hesed, instead of the destruction most of us discern and deserve, he extends his willingness to absorb the wrath of God to us. Don't forget, you know, there's no one left to absorb the wrath of God except Jesus now, not us. In his covenant, as his people, we do not have to experience that kind of wrath because Jesus on the cross already has. Hmm? So again, if you meet people who are haunted by this, direct them to the cross. Remind them of Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and say, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't done that way. Look to Jesus and his wounds, as Martin Luther's uh, confessor said. Because we are his covenant kin. You know what it means to be covenant kin? We say brother and sister all the time here in the church. I think the Gaithers have even, or Audrey Meyer has got a song about it from my time in the 70s. I'm so glad we're part of the family of God. You know, we use those phrases, we sing them. Not too many people say, we are the covenant kin of the almighty of the universe. His name is embedded in the concept of salvation, undeserved, freely given from a perfect being to us. I don't know how to unpack that for you. There is, in this kind of a message, for me, a gigantic so what? How do we unpack this personally? How do we unpack this as God's covenant kin? You know, as I, as I prepared for this message, I could feel this growing sense of impossibility. Which is why I'm praying for the miracle of the Holy Spirit to give you knowledge of what to do. Relieve yourself from false guilt. Relieve yourself from ignorance. Make you think twice about those pictures of Jesus in your house or how you throw the name Yahweh around. Make you realize that the silliest thing you can do when you go to the third commandment is thinking about making a picture. By the way, that's why the Shroud of Turin doesn't bother me much. The idea that, that Jesus would leave behind a photographic image on a piece of linen and that would help our faith? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but then, you know, you had to be there, as my students used to say when they couldn't come up with an answer to the question in the history exam. Well, sir, you had to be there. But here we are, unpacking the divine essence. You know, God 
Even St. Thomas Aquinas said, you want to understand God's existence, I can show you ways to believe that God exists. But if you want to understand what God really is, you have to go to the name, and the name is Jesus. That's our Hasid name. And Jesus, like his father, would rather bring good out of evil than not permit evil to exist. It is his way. It is the way of Hesed. That's why the great rabbi Rashi, in the Middle Ages, Rashi of Troy, wrote that God gives precedence to the rule of mercy over the rule of justice. And so as I pray now, my prayer is to commend you and me to the mercy of the name to the mercy of Hashem, to the mercy of Chesed. Lord Jesus, give us through your spirit a deepening awareness of how we walk in a living relationship with you, the living God, and how terrible it would be to take you for granted and how blessed you are to forgive us when we do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.